Alrighty. Well, good morning to you all. Hope you're doing well. Um, we're definitely praying for all of you. Thank you so much, Dan and Mark. Appreciate you guys. And um, as Dan said, let's be praying for all those who are still recovering in various ways and uh, with various levels of uh, sickness. Um, obviously, this week we're celebrating Thanksgiving. And so happy Thanksgiving to you all a little early. But obviously, um, the fact that we celebrate Thanksgiving every year is part of God's providence. And it's a wonderful thing because the whole matter of giving thanks is not just an academic question to you know, ask ourselves something like, what do I have to be thankful for? Or how can I be more thankful? That's really an important question in, in light of Things like what we find in Romans chapter 1, where Paul talks about the fact that in verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. And so one of the most fundamental ways we acknowledge the existence of God and we acknowledge um, the glory of God and the honor of God and one of the ways we truly uh, magnify the Lord is through giving thanks. And yet, as was already mentioned, in various ways there are things going on in our country and maybe in, in our own personal lives that really challenge us to be thankful. And obviously it's always uh, the place to start is just to confess our lack of gratitude, our, our struggle to be truly thankful and ask God to help us. That's always the place to start. God gives grace to the humble. And so... If we're wrestling these days in light of our own situation or in light of where our country is to be truly thankful, then we start there and we say, God, please help us to be truly thankful to you for what is happening in all the appropriate ways we should be thankful. And so what we want to do today is look at Revelation chapter 4 and think about that together. Um, one of our favorite movies in our house is The Sound of Music. And one of the songs in that um, musical is My Favorite Things. And it's obviously a song that talks about uh, when the dog bites, when the bee stings, when I'm feeling sad, what do I do? And so the question for us is kind of the same in the sense that when things aren't going the way we would like for them to go, how do we respond? What is our strategy for encouraging gratefulness uh, in the song it's uh, thinking about uh, my favorite things um, uh, whiskers on kittens and things like that uh, rainbows um, or whatever it might be and the question is is that really sufficient I mean that's not a bad thing uh, to think about the things that you really enjoy but unless we connect those things to ultimate reality connect those unless we can connect those things to God himself then it's not going to do for us the kind of transformative work in our hearts that really needs to take place and so that's why it's helpful to think about this Thanksgiving what is your focus what are you really focusing on focusing on your favorite things uh, focusing on getting together with family uh, what is your focus now those things aren't bad those are good things but we have to really uh, ask ourselves, what kinds of things does the Lord through his word encourage us to focus on? And in Revelation chapter 4, we have a picture of heaven. And um, we might ask the question, when you think about heaven, what do you think of? And if you were to go to heaven today, what do you think you would see? Now, obviously, we've all been exposed to various people who have claimed to die and go to heaven for a little while and then come back. My perspective on that is uh, I don't doubt that they experienced what they said they experienced, but I don't think that what they said they saw in heaven is what we would see if we died and actually went there ourselves. There are those who talk about uh, Jesus riding a rainbow horse uh, talk about seeing butterflies and and uh, rows of you know big mansions and houses and things like that. 
Well, the Bible doesn't really talk that way. Um, it might allude to mansions of sorts or dwelling places and things like that. But actually, we don't get a whole lot of detail when it comes to heaven. In fact, Paul was transported to heaven. And what he said about that experience was, um, this man caught up into paradise, caught up into the third heaven, which was evidently Paul, but he refers to himself in the third person. He says that this person heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. And so what we find uh, from the Apostle Paul is, he said, you know, I heard things that I could not even repeat. And what we find in Revelation chapter 4 is we have not a snapshot of heaven. Uh, what we find is symbols that are meant to communicate truth to us that are important for us to understand, especially in light of the difficult situations we may find ourselves. And so when we read Revelation chapter 4, we shouldn't expect that if we died and went to heaven today that we would see heaven just like it's portrayed for us here in Revelation chapter 4. What we find in this chapter is a symbolic description of the kinds of truths that are meant to help us find joy and encouragement and peace in a world that tends to be at best unpredictable and at worst chaotic. And we look at what's going on in our country and we wonder what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, we're not sure. Things are so very unpredictable, it seems. And then you've got all this writing going on with the Kyle Rittenhouse trial and things like that. And you just look at the chaos and you think, wow, this is really, really a difficult time to truly be thankful. And yet Revelation chapter 4 is meant to help us look behind the scenes and to see what is really taking place, what is transcending all the things that we actually see. There's a story in 2 Kings 6 where Elisha prays that his servant would have his eyes open that he could see. And when the Lord opened his eyes, he saw uh, mountains full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And that was why Elisha wasn't afraid was because he could see behind the scenes. He could see what was happening in the spiritual realm. And he knew that God was going to take care of him. And that's the same kind of thing that God is doing here in Revelation chapter 4, is showing us what's going on behind the scenes so that we don't have to be afraid, so that we'll have peace. That's why it says in Romans 15:13, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of of the Holy Spirit. Believing what? Believing what God says is true, what God says is real, what God says is happening behind the scenes so that we need not be afraid. Well, the book of Revelation is about the events leading up to the return of Christ when he's going to rescue his people, judge all men, he's going to abolish all evil, and he's going to usher in heaven on earth. And that's what we're looking forward to, that ultimate day of glory. And yet there are things that have to happen before that takes place. And so in Revelation chapter 1, it focuses on the reign of Christ over all things, over all kings, and his involvement with his church. Revelation 2 and 3 highlights the challenges to God's people, both inside the church and outside the church. And then Revelation chapter 4 gives us a heavenly perspective on earthly realities. It basically answers the question, how do things look from God's perspective? We know how things look from our perspective, but how do things look from God's perspective? So let me read for us this short chapter. It's only 11 verses, and we'll go from there. In verse 1, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments, and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come 
flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. So here we have a picture of heaven uh, in symbol form that's meant to communicate certain truths to us. And so in times of unpredictability, times of chaos, uh, questions naturally arise, like the very fundamental question, is there anyone really in charge? Is everything just haphazard and, and out of control and spinning out of control and going um, into uh, a chaotic mess with no purpose or meaning? Um, actually, the man, uh, Frank Baum, who wrote uh, The Wizard of Oz, uh, grew up in, in the Methodist church, but as he got older, he, he became a little jaded. He became a little uh, skeptical about the existence of God and, and about the reality of a God who is all-loving and all-powerful. And he actually wrote The Wizard of Oz, the story, to actually call into question whether or not anyone like that, like an all-powerful, all-loving God, was really uh, behind the scenes. And so what we have going on when Dorothy and the Tin Man and the Scarecrow and the Lion uh, go back to see the Wizard of Oz and he's basically trying to get them to go away and little Toto pulls back the curtain and shows this little uh, old man who's working these levers and working this machine and he basically announces over the, over the loud system, uh, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. And so the whole idea is that um, if we're going to solve our problems, we're going to have to fix them ourselves. At least that was the message that Frank Baum was trying to communicate. Because ultimately the story says the cowardly lion uh, uh, brought courage into his own heart and the tin man got a heart on his own and the scarecrow you know, got what he needed, and Dorothy ultimately was going to get back home, and it was all about finding within ourselves what we need to handle uh, the unpredictability and the chaos of life, because there's really no all-powerful, all-loving God behind the scenes. There's no all-powerful God behind the curtain, and yet the very thing that Revelation chapter 4 is telling us to do is just the opposite of what Frank Baum concluded was the thing to do. Revelation 4 is saying, no, we need to pay attention to the one who is behind the curtain. We need to pay attention to the one who is behind the scenes. And so that's what we want to uh, look at and, and we want to see. And if you look at verse 2, in verse 2 we find what is the central and predominant image that's being pictured for us in this chapter. In, in verse 2, it says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, meaning he was in a prophetic vision. And it says, And behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And so the very first thing that is mentioned in this picture that's being painted for John to be communicated to the people of God is about a throne. And... It's a chair, right? The throne is a chair, but it's a chair that is a symbol of authority. 
Indeed, the throne of God is a symbol of sovereign authority over all things. And in fact, in this one little chapter of 11 verses, the throne of God is mentioned 11 times. And in the book of Revelation, the reference to God's throne is mentioned about 40 times or so overall. And so it's a major, major theme. The throne of God is mentioned more in the book of Revelation than we find in the rest of the Bible. And so there's no doubt that our minds are meant to be fixed upon the throne of God, the sovereignty of God over all things. It's sort of like uh, the illustration I've used with Frank Peretti, where he talks about the chair and how we need a fixed point of reference in our lives. Well, uh, God, uh, through John, is telling us, yes, we need a fixed point of reference in our lives, and it is a chair, but it's a throne, and it's the throne of God. And that throne is fixed. It will not be moved, and it is forever. And God says, fix your heart and mind on me sitting on the throne. I'm not pacing back and forth in front of the throne. I'm sitting. I'm at rest. I'm in charge, and I'm on the throne of the universe. In Psalm 47, 8, it says, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Then there are other verses that talk about just how detailed and how minute God's control and sovereignty over all things actually is. In Proverbs 16, it says the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You roll uh, paradise and whatever comes up is what God determines will come up. Proverbs 16 says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. What you ultimately say in response to someone is actually something over which God is sovereign. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes, which means God is control of President Biden and um, Putin and all the other rulers in this world right now, God has a sovereign control, ruling and reigning over all that is said and done by them. In Lamentations 3, it says, Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? So that God is the one who ultimately is in charge of what happens one way or the other. Matthew 10, 29 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the dying of a little bird is not something that happens apart from the sovereign, ordained will of God. And all of these pictures are meant to say that there's not a molecule in the universe, as R.C. Sproul would say, that is a rogue molecule that is outside the control of a sovereign and good God. And so the most important thing I can do is pay attention to the one behind the curtain, is to pay attention to the one who's on the throne, who is ruling and reigning over all things. You may wonder why I picked this passage uh, for Thanksgiving. If you look at verse 9, it actually connects giving thanks to the throne of God. In verse 9, it says, And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, and it goes on from there, it connects thanksgiving directly to the throne of God. And so God wants us to realize that our peace, our joy, is going to be connected to our connecting our own hearts and minds to his rule and reign over all things. Now, we're tempted to be afraid, right? And there are all kinds of reasons why we're tempted to be afraid. We're tempted not to be grateful. Uh, we're tempted to be overwhelmed by what's happening in our country and what's happening in our own lives. Um, sometimes we do doubt uh, who's on the throne. Uh, we doubt God's character. We doubt God's plans. We doubt God's purposes. Uh, it's almost like um, we're tempted 
And I, I do believe we are truly tempted by Satan um, because he tempted Job to curse God and die, which means he tempted um, Satan tempted Job to think of God like Simon Legree in the book Uncle Tom's Cabin by Herrick Beecher Stowe. You've got uh, Simon Legree, who is the greedy, brutal master of uh, Tom, who ultimately uh, beats him to death or has him beaten to death. And it's very um, a very real temptation for all of us. There are a lot of people who come to the conclusion, like Frank Baum, that either there is no all-powerful, all-loving God, or if he does exist, he can't be all-powerful or he can't be all-loving. There must be something evil about God because of all the evil that is taking place in our world. He must be more like Simon Legree than whoever we would consider to be truly good, loving, and worthy of our worship. And yet, the Song of Solomon, in talking about the bridegroom, says his mouth is full of sweetness and he is wholly desirable. And that is really the picture that we have painted of God here. In this chapter, in the book of Revelation, and throughout the Bible, is that God is a God who is wholly desirable. There's nothing in him that we should recoil from or be afraid of uh, as his people. Um, obviously, if we are in rebellion against him, he's a holy God, and we should fear his holy wrath. But if we are seeking his mercy and uh, seeking him, then we should see a God who is wholly desirable and someone that we could not improve upon. And so these verses encourages us to think about God in that way. And the first um, impression that we should get from um, this picture that we have here is seen in verses 2 through 4, where it talks about the fact that uh, John doesn't give us a detailed picture of what God looks like. What we actually have are um, colors, so to speak. It says in verse 3, And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. The jasper stone was either um, a kind of green or as clear. Sardius was like a red or a ruby. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And a lot of people connect these colors to the breastplate of the high priest, that they were uh, the jewels that would have been found in the breastplate of the high priest. And obviously, the picture of the high priest is a picture of mercy. As someone that the people could go to, and he would represent them before God, that they might be accepted by God, that they might be forgiven by God. It's a picture of compassion, someone who is uh, able to relate to us and intercede for us. And so you have a picture, first of all, of God as high priest. But then it goes on to talk about the fact that this rainbow, uh, this emerald green is like uh, in the form of a rainbow. And obviously the idea of the rainbow takes us back to Noah's Ark, which it was a picture of Christ and the salvation provided by Christ, that God saves us from the flood of his wrath by providing a savior in the person of Jesus. And so the ark is a picture of Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. And then there's the rainbow in which God promises that he will never flood the world again. And the flood indeed is a picture of judgment. So it's a picture, the rainbow itself is a picture of a covenant of mercy. And so when it says the, the throne was surrounded by a rainbow, it's meant to emphasize the loving mercy, the tender mercy of God, that that is what we see, should see first of all when we envision God on his throne, that it is a throne of goodness, of love, and mercy. And it's got these elders around it, 24 elders. A lot of people um, have speculated about what that refers to. It could refer to the priesthood in the Old Testament where there are 24 uh, divisions of um, priests or 24 divisions of Levites that actually worshiped in the temple. Obviously, elder 
uh, refers to those who are leaders in Israel. Uh, some would say it could refer to the 12 tribes plus the 12 apostles, which we see reflected in various ways in the book of Revelation. One way or the other, it appears that it represents the people of God, that up close and personal right in God's very vision as he's ruling and reigning over everything he has in view, his people. That he doesn't look at whatever he's doing apart from looking at his people. He is taking us into consideration. He is not doing what he's doing without reference to what is truly good, loving, kind, and merciful and gracious to his people. And so you, you have the people of God reflected in this symbolism, again, that's being portrayed for us, that God is ruling and reigning. He's ruling and reigning with his people very much on his heart and being a part of his decision-making process. And that's why the Bible tells us that God is working all things together for our good. And so what we see here is a picture of a throne of love. 1 John 4, 8 tells us God is love. And so therefore, could his throne be anything but a God or a throne, excuse me, of love? In Isaiah 16, 5, it says a throne will even be established in loving kindness. In Psalm 89, 14, it talks about God's throne, and it says, Loving kindness and truth go before you. In Zechariah 6, it says, He will be a priest on his throne. Hebrews 4 says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then in James 5, it says, We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job but have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. The outcome of all that God is doing is that which is full of compassion and merciful because he reigns on a throne of love, because he can do no other, because he is love. And that's meant to be the first impression we get as we see this picture. The second impression we get is found in verses 5 and 6, and that is the impression of a holy and pure, as well as a demanding love. It talks about in verse 5, there are flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And if you think about that a little bit, that sounds a lot like Mount Sinai and what happened when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses and all the other laws on Mount Sinai. Sinai is a picture of God's holy standard, God's holy requirement. It says there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. It doesn't mean there were seven spirits, but it's speaking poetically and symbolically of the sevenfold spirit or the perfect spirit of God. It's a, it's a picture of the Holy Spirit who is perfect in every way. And then there's a reference to something like a sea of glass, like crystal, which is a picture of, instead of the chaos of a raging sea, we have a completely flat, undisturbed, uh, transparent um, floor like a sea of glass that is also understood to be a reflection of uh, holiness because of its purity and its clarity, being able to see very, very uh, clearly through it. So it's a picture, secondly, of a throne of light. Uh, in 1 John 1, 5, the Bible tells us that God is light, and in him there is no darkness. He's not just a God of love, so to speak, but he's a God of holy, just, righteous love. Um, he never does anything wrong in the name of love. He always does what's right and what's just and what's good in the name of love. It says in Psalm 97, 2, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Psalm 9, 4 says, you have sat on the throne judging righteously. Psalm 11 says, his eyelids test the sons of men as he looks on them from his throne in heaven. He's 
judging men, he's evaluating men, all in light of his righteous standard. His throne is called a throne of justice in Proverbs 20. And then finally, in the latter part of that very chapter, it says he upholds his throne by righteousness, which means we can trust God to always do what's right from his throne. He will always ordain what is truly right and wise and good. And he will never ordain that which is ultimately, from his perspective, because of his purposes, wrong. Now, does that mean he doesn't ordain evil? Of course, he, he does ordain evil, but he does not ordain it because of a evil intent. He allows evil, he ordains evil, but he brings good out of evil, and he ordains what he ordains for the sake of truth and for the sake of righteousness, out of heart, a heart of love and a heart of light. And then the third impression, what is that? In verses 6 through 8, um, it's the impression of that everything flows from him, that everything finds its source and its substance in him, because what we find there is a picture of four living creatures, and one of these creatures is like a lion, one is like a calf or an ox, one is like a, a, a man with the face of a man, one is like a flying eagle. And there are those who would say the lion is the chief of the wild animals, the calf or the ox is the chief of the, the domesticated animals, the eagle is the chief of the birds, and man is the chief of the intelligent created beings. And so you put it all together and you have representatives of all of uh, animate creation, all of living uh, creation. And it says that they um, had eyes in front and behind. They were full of eyes. That probably is a reference to the idea that God, in his omniscience, oversees every single aspect of creation. It's not a sparrow that falls to, to the ground apart from him. He knows all that is taking place. He is intimately aware of all that's taking place in your life and in my life, intimately aware of all that's taking place in our country, and he knows it and sees it in, from its roots and uh, in light of what's really happening better than even we can. And indeed, everything that has life flows from him. Uh, God is the one who gives life to everything. And so the idea of the deists is the idea that God just kind of created the world like a watch and uh, and wound it up and then went off and did something else. That's not the picture that we have here. The picture that we have here is that God is very intimately involved in all that is taking place in creation. He's closer to us than our own breath and he knows what is going on and indeed he's giving life to every living thing. We could not be alive if it were not for him and his life and his command. And that his life that sustains all these things is a life that will never end. He's not going to be alive one day and then die, like some people say. God is dead. God's gone. God, Everything is going crazy because God has stopped existing. Well, that's not the truth that the Bible says in Psalm 45, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Lamentations 5, you, O Lord, rule forever. Your throne is from generation to generation. Acts 17 tells us that uh, in him we live and move and exist. It's That's the only way we or anyone else can continue going. It's through God. It says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, What do you have that you did not receive? Whatever we give thanks for this Thanksgiving, we should give thanks to God because it comes from God. Uh, there's nothing that we have that we have not actually received and received from God, whether it be our own physical life, our health, our wives, our husbands, our children, our grandchildren, our homes, Whatever it is, whatever we, uh, whatever life we have, whatever we experience in life, uh, it comes from God. And his throne is a throne of life. It's a life-giving throne. And so all of that is meant to encourage us to 
think about uh, the one who is on the throne, that he is love, he is light, and he is life. And he is truly in charge of all that is going on. Well, we may want to ask the question, what is the central message of the passage? And I think the central message of the passage uh, in terms of what God wants us to take away from this picture of him on his throne is found in verse 1 and in verse 11, the first verse and the last verse. It says in verse 1, this is the Lord Jesus speaking, I will show you what must take place after these things. So after these things refers to the vision of the churches in chapter 2 and chapter 3, as well as the vision of Christ in chapter 1. And so basically it's a reference to this is what must happen um, and before I return. And the idea of must um, happen means that John is being brought into uh, the hidden counsel of God. God, uh, God is giving John and giving us through John an insight into what is happening and why it's happening. Even though uh, we may not fully understand how it all plays into this overall picture, this is still God giving us some insight, pulling back the curtain for us and helping us to see what is really going on. And when he says uh, what must take place, he's talking about the sovereign ordained will of God. The idea of must is the idea of necessity. These things must take place. You might recall in 1 Peter 1, Paul talks about, excuse me, Peter talks about our trials, and he says that we will go through trials if necessary which means there's nothing happening in your life and in my life and in this country that isn't necessary. It must happen. It has to happen. Why? For God's purposes to be fulfilled. It has to happen for the purpose of God to be fulfilled. We've heard a lot of people say, even non-Christians will often say sometimes, there's a reason for everything. Well, more and more, that's becoming less and less um, something that people can say and be consistent because if you don't believe in God and you don't believe that there's really anything before us or anything after us, then you can't really say there's a reason for everything. Really, there's a reason for nothing. If evolution is true, there is no God, then there's a reason for nothing. It's all simply chaos. It's all simply unpredictable uh, outworkings of uh, the firing of uh, neurons and atoms and all kinds of things. It has no meaning whatsoever. And all we should do in light of that is probably cower in a corner and wait until it's over. But if there really is a reason for everything, and there is according to Revelation, Revelation chapter 4, then we can find joy and peace in believing as we trust God to work out his perfect purpose. Um, so what we have here in Revelation chapter 4 is a picture of the control room of the universe, so to speak, where God is sovereign over history. It is his story. Truly, it is his story. History is not random. There's a divine purpose in all that is taking place. In verse 11, it says, For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. I think that means because of your purpose, they exist and were created. So the reason why any of us exist is for God's purpose. And the reason why anything is happening is because of God's purpose. God has a purpose. There is a reason for it, even though we may find it very, very difficult to understand. I've shared probably a few times this legend that is actually a story that's told by Richard Wormbrand. You might be familiar with him. He suffered greatly um, for the Lord. And uh, I assume this is one of those stories that has helped him as he wrestles with the unpredictability and the, the chaos that he found in his own life. As he went through horrible suffering. But he tells the story about Moses, and it goes like this. A legend says that Moses once sat near a well in meditation. 
a wayfarer stopped to drink from the well, and when he did so, his purse fell from his girdle into the sand. The man departed. Shortly afterwards, another man passed near the well, saw the purse, and picked it up. Later, a third man stopped to uh, quench his thirst and went to sleep in the shadow of the well. Meanwhile, the first man had discovered that his purse was missing, and assuming he must have lost it at the well, returned, awoke the sleeper, who was, of course, um, oblivious to what had happened, and demanded his money back. An argument followed, and irate, the first man slew the latter man, the third man. Whereupon Moses said to God, You see, therefore men do not believe you. There is too much evil and injustice in the world. Why should the first man have lost his purse and then become a murderer? Why should the second have gotten a, uh, a purse full of gold without having worked for it? The third was completely innocent. Why was he slain? God answers, for once and only once I will give you an explanation. I cannot do it at every step. The first man was a thief's son. The purse contained money stolen by his father from the father of the second man, who finding the purse only found what was due him. The third was a murderer whose crime had never been revealed and who received from the first the punishment he deserved. In the future, believe that there is sense and righteousness in what transpires even when you do not understand. It's just a story, all stories uh, that we use to try to describe how God orders the universe have some weaknesses, but it is, this story does highlight the fact that there are reasons behind what take place that we are not aware of, that we don't know why certain things happen to certain people. And we may be immediately tempted to accuse God of injustice, to accuse God of not being wise, not being loving, not being righteous. And the story is meant to remind us of what the Bible tells us in all kinds of ways, that we need to trust God, which means I need to trust that God is truly reigning on a throne of love, a throne of light, and a throne of life, and that all that comes from his throne is ultimately good and righteous and holy and commendable, which brings us um, to the last uh, point of the throne of perfection. There's a verse that I was uh, reading this week uh, as I was going through Ezekiel in which God says, um, you'll see what's going to happen and you will see that uh, and know that I have not done in vain whatever I did. That's a key phrase there that jumped out to me as I read that. that God says, uh, one day you will know that I did what I did and I did not do it in vain which means there were good, good reasons for what I did. Indeed, commendable reasons. Indeed, reasons that would cause your heart to worship me forever. And that's exactly what we see happening in verses 8 through 11. We see, first of all, the four living creatures um, saying uh, day and night, uh, not ceasing to say, holy, 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 is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who uh, is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. So what's the central comfort um, the central point you could argue is that God rules and reigns with a good purpose over all things. And it's not just a good purpose from his perspective. One day we will see it and we will say, that was a good purpose from our perspective too. And that's why we will worship God. Uh, when we see the truth of reality as it truly is, and we see all that God has been up to, it will provoke joy. It will provoke love. It will provoke worship. There will be no complaining 
in heaven about what God ordained. There's no complaining. You look at uh, life on earth from heaven's perspective, and there are no uh, complaint boxes. It's all worship. And we see that reflected in um, the four living creatures when it says, holy, holy, holy. Now, when we think of holiness, we usually think immediately of um, purity, of always doing what's right, and it does include that. But the root idea of holiness is separateness or uniqueness. And I think that's really the emphasis here is that um, the, the living creatures are worshiping God as being unique, unique, unique. There's nobody like God, separate from creation, separate from us. Whereas uh, we can imagine that we could actually ordain things that would not be good and right, that could be selfish and cruel and brutal and mean. We can imagine other people doing that. We can imagine ourselves doing that. But we worship a God who isn't like us. He is unique. He is holy, holy, holy. And so we have to be careful of projecting ourselves or projecting the Simon Legrees of the world onto God because he is unique, unique, unique. There's no one like him in love. No one like him in holiness and light. No one like him in how he runs the universe. No one better. He is perfect. And that's why it says, worthy are you. They're worshiping him in light of his sovereign orchestration of all things. They're not questioning his wisdom or his love or his holiness. They're worshiping him. They're saying, you are worthy of praise in light of what you have ordained. And that's the question for us this Thanksgiving. Can we say, God, you are worthy of our love and praise and thanksgiving, our honor, because of how you're running the universe, because of how you're running our country, because of how you're running our lives. You're worthy of our worship. So the picture is of a God who is not only in control and working all things according to his purpose, but who is also worthy, worthy of all praise and thanksgiving for what he is bringing to pass. There are no complaints when earth is seen from the perspective of heaven. We can be thankful for a reign that's worthy of joy-filled worship. In 1 Samuel 2, it says, There is no one holy like the Lord. Or in Psalm 86, There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord. Or 2 Samuel 7, There is none like you, and there is no God beside you. First Chronicles 17, O Lord, there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you. Jeremiah 10, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name in might. In Jeremiah 10, verse 7, it says, Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. There's an interesting verse in 1 Kings 10 where it's talking about Solomon, where it says, Because the Lord loved Israel forever, therefore he made you king. I like to uh, remind us of the fact that Solomon is a picture of Christ and therefore ultimately a picture of God. And therefore, if God is truly everything that we've just seen he is in Revelation 4, then we can say the fact that we have God as our king must be because he loves us. If God rules and reigns over everything perfectly, then therefore we're being loved perfectly, and therefore we could not have a better king. And that's what those verses are talking about. In Romans 3, it talks about the fact that on Judgment Day, every mouth will be closed. And that's especially with regard to their own sin and their deserving of judgment. But I think on Judgment Day, every mouth will be closed as well with regard to complaints. There will be no complaints that, God, you did what you did, and it wasn't wise, it wasn't loving, it wasn't right. Every mouth will will be closed because we will see 
things as they are. We will see, like it said about Jesus in Mark 7, he's done all things well. That's what we'll say on Judgment Day. Oh God, you've done all things well. It says in Deuteronomy 32, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Isaiah 25, it says, For you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago, with perfect faithfulness. Matthew 5 says we're to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Romans 12 talks about God's will as being good, acceptable, and perfect. But the Bible says in Philippians 1 that he who began a good work in us will perfect it unto the day of Christ Jesus. He will perfect everything that is happening in this world one day, including our own salvation. James 1:17 says, "Every good thing and every uh, excuse me, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above." And that's why it says in 1 John 4:18, "There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear." And so God has given us this picture of Himself, this, this encouragement with regard to His purpose, so that we might not, need not, be afraid, but might have joy and peace. Uh, there are theologians that have talked in terms of the best of all possible worlds, and they've tried to argue for or against the the question of whether or not this world is the best of all possible worlds. And Voltaire and others have criticized theologians for talking like that, saying, how in the world could this world, with all the injustice, all the evil, all the chaos, all the rioting, um, all the sickness, all that we uh, see in this world, how could this world be the best of all possible worlds? But ultimately goes back to James chapter 5, where it talks about that we need to see that the outcome of the Lord's dealings is merciful and compassionate. It goes to the issue of the outcome. And that's why someone has said, uh, the best of all possible worlds means that God governs the course of history so that in the long run, his glory will be more fully displayed and his people more fully satisfied than would have been the case in any other world. If we look only at the way things are now in the present era of this fallen world, this is not the best of all possible worlds. But if we look at the whole course of history from creation to redemption to eternity and beyond and see the entirety of God's plan, it is the best of all possible plans and leads to the best of all possible eternities. And therefore this universe and the events that happen in it from creation into eternity, taken as a whole, is the best of all possible worlds. That's why at the end of his series, uh, C.S. Lewis talked in the last battle about how everything is happening now is just like uh, the beginning of the book, the cover page, and that eternity is like the, the beginning of chapter 1, of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. The argument is that whatever is going on now is ultimately necessary that we might experience the great story, the greatest story of all, which is the eternity with God in heaven through Jesus, that the outcome the outcome is full of mercy and compassion, full of joy and happiness and peace. And therefore, all of these things are part of what God is doing to bring about the greatest possible outcome in your life and in my life as his people and in this world, ultimately. And so when we think about Thanksgiving, uh, when you think about Romans, excuse me, Revelation 4 as laying a foundation for all the various calls that we find in Scripture to give thanks. Uh, there's a throne of love ruling over everything. There's a throne of light ruling over everything. There's a throne of life ruling over everything. There's a God on that throne who is unique in his love and righteousness and holiness. And he's worthy 
of all worship and praise and thanksgiving. And he's a God who's purposeful. There's nothing that's happening that's in vain or that's for a bad purpose. There is a good reason for it all. And therefore, we honor God by giving thanks. If we don't give thanks and we dishonor the God who is. Um, by giving thanks, we recognize how God is loving us. By giving thanks, we honor God in the eyes of other people. By giving thanks, we make proper connections between what's happening around us and God on his throne. When we give thanks, we give him proper credit and glory for the good things that are going on. When we give thanks, we fight the idolatry of looking to ourselves and other things as the source of those good things. When we give thanks, we fight other sins, complaining, criticizing people. So the Bible talks about actually giving thanks for people so that we will actually have a right attitude toward them. Uh, giving thanks encourages faith and love and conscious dependence on God. It fuels more gratitude and it lets us know that we're connected to reality. I think that's the point of Romans 1 when it says they did not honor him as God or give thanks. We're not connected to reality if we're not thanking God for what's happening in our world. And so that's why we have all these calls to give thanks. First Chronicles 16, oh, get, oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make his deeds known among the peoples. First Chronicles, Chronicles 16, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. In Psalm 50, it says, He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. Psalm 69, I will praise the name of God with song and magnify him with thanksgiving. We put the focus on God when we give thanks. Psalm 92, it is good to give thanks to the Lord. It's the right thing to do. Psalm 107, let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness. If indeed his throne is a throne of love, then what is happening is ultimately intended to show us love, mercy, grace. It says in Ephesians 5, <clears throat> always giving thanks for all things, for all things, because all things flow from the throne of God. It also says in 1 Thessalonians, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you. It's all a part of God's will for your life, all a part of God's purpose in everything give thanks. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Which means there's a connection between being grateful and being at peace with other people. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. <coughs> when we pray, we're to ask ourselves, what do I have to be thankful for? Lest we not pray in the right spirit. Lest we pray in unbelief. Lest we pray with an ungrateful heart. Pray, being devoted to prayer, being alert with an attitude of thanksgiving. It says in 1 Timothy 2, and Dan mentioned this in his prayer and praying for our leaders. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. Are we thanking God for President Biden? Are we thanking God for Vice President Harris? Are we thanking God for Governor Newsom? Are we thanking God in light of his throne and his rule and reign over all of these in authority? We give thanks as an act of faith. It's an act of thanks to God in light of what he's ordaining and purposing and accomplishing through these he's put into power. Doesn't mean we don't oppose evil. Doesn't mean we don't oppose unrighteousness. Doesn't mean we don't say no to um, calls to do things we shouldn't do. But at the same time, we're called to give thanks in light of God's rule and reign over them all. And so Hebrews 13 says, Through him then let, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Because his name is who he is. It's what he is. And that's what's ruling and reigning over all that is taking place. And ultimately, we are to thank, give thanks to God for his indescribable gift, the gift of the Lord Jesus. We always have reason to be thankful in light of the cross of Christ.
Just remember as we conclude what Jesus said to Pilate. He said, you would have no authority over me that had not given, been given to you from above. So whatever's happening in our lives, it could not happen unless that authority and that permission had been given from above. And who is above? The one who loves us perfectly. The one who does all things well. The one who is worthy of all of our worship. So this Thanksgiving, let's focus on uh, the fixed point of reference, which is the throne standing in heaven. And the one on that throne, who's not pacing back and forth, worried and concerned about what's going to happen. He's ruling and reigning over it all perfectly. And he's loving you and he's loving me perfectly. And he calls us to trust him. He calls us to find joy and peace and to give thanks. And may God give us much grace to do just that more and more this Thanksgiving. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to focus on your word, to be reminded of the truth. But ultimately, we need you, Holy Spirit, to open our eyes to see the truth in fresh and new ways, to see how it applies to our own lives, to see how it applies to our country. We pray that we would have our hearts fixed on um, the true fixed point of reference, which is your throne, O God, and your heart that rules and reigns over everything. You are perfect love. You are perfect light. You are perfect light, uh, excuse me, life. And we can trust you. We need not be afraid. And we can trust that you will bring out the perfect outcome through all of this for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. So we thank you for that. And we pray that you would strengthen our faith that you'd guard us against fear and unbelief, and that you'd help us to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is your will for us in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray, amen.